From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The challenge of finding the right balance of independence and attentive care for long-term senior living can be agonizing for families. And when it comes to private pay, senior care, expensive. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution investigative reporter Carrie Teagarden has spent a year looking for what you won't see on tours of more than 500 private pay senior care facilities in Georgia. Her investigation found hundreds of safety violations, incidences of physical abuse, and assaults to dignity that often go unreported. Carrie Teagarden joins me in the studio today to walk us through the AJC series. It's called mm. Unprotected, Broken Promises in Georgia's Senior Care Industry. Carrie, what a mountain of work you've done here. Oh, yes. We spent um, a lot of time with a lot of documents and a lot of conversations. So looking so. through those <clears throat> court records, police reports, inspection <clears throat> documents, speaking with family members and experts, this is a multi-part report, <clears throat> of course, but how would you summarize most of what you've learned? I feel like um, these are beautiful facilities that have popped up everywhere. They have gorgeous lobbies. They're very expensive. And the assumption is that the care would match the appearance. And what we found is that's too often not the case. Yeah. In fact, the marketing materials, the gap between the marketing materials and what's actually going on. The first series and the first article in the series rather focuses on one particularly egregious example of that gap at Sunrise. This is a facility in East Cobb. Tell us about what happened when one resident, Adam Bennett, was promised and, and what actually happened. Uh, Adam Bennett was a World War II veteran in his 90s. Um, he had had moved into Sunrise because it was right around the corner from his daughter's house. She was looking for a great facility for him. He had been really happy in independent living and other facilities in Atlanta, but he'd just gotten pretty frail. But this is a place that cost over $6,000 a month, and they assured um, his daughter that they could meet his needs. Um, and it ended up um, turning into a murder case. Um, he, you know, it's sort of the last thing you would think would happen. And basically, he uh, told a, a caregiver after an overnight shift that he was beaten. And those were really the last words that he spoke. Um, he had broken ribs, um, internal injuries, bruises all over his face that morning. What happened that night? No one will ever know, but he had a caregiver that night named Landon Terrell who was charged with murder. A jury, after a week of testimony, really couldn't determine exactly what happened. And uh, Mr. Bennett had some dementia, so um, there was an argument that he shouldn't be believed. And um, so the caregiver did end up end up getting convicted of elder neglect. But the family was devastated. And I think one thing I've I've experienced in talking to numerous families is they go to so much trouble, so much expense to care for someone in their last years. And if that goes wrong, mm. there's no one doing that. Right. There's I, no there's no kind of getting over that. Um, after someone had been such a beloved family member who'd provided and been a, a just a, a, a great person.
I'm, I'm going through it myself yes. with an in-law here in Georgia. But, the, you know, cases, a, a murder case is one thing, but there are so many cases that you document about just neglect, for example. Uh, a, another World War II veteran left outside in 100-degree heat. Yes. AIDS assaulting residents, even some sexual assault mm-hmm. among residents. A woman whose broken hip was unattended for nine days. Were these reported when they happened? Well, some were, some weren't. I mean, that was a big... Um, the whole whole issue of things not being reported and then, you know, Georgians being able to find out about them even when they are is a big part of of what we're looking at um, in our report, because it's very hard to find out real factual information about all these facilities around the state that are inspected. But to try to find information is very difficult. Um, And then the fact that complete information isn't there. You know, we found it's very common for facilities not to report incidents that they're required to report. And we have a story today about how prosecutors who specialize in elder abuse are very concerned across the state that they're not being told about the cases that they want to know about. And for them, that concern is, okay, there's still people working in the industry who perhaps should not be. Right. Well, the Department of Community Health is in charge of licensing and inspecting the state's senior care facilities. But as you said, you found that many of these violations missing, they're outdated often, and prosecutors can't get their hands on reports. How does Georgia's DCH compare to similar oversight departments across the country? Well, in terms of transparency, not well. Um, Many other states have much um, better websites. And in fact, we at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution spent months creating a website that we just um, opened up for consumers this week to give them this kind of information because the state wasn't doing it. Um, But in other states, for example, they'll tell you um, about complaints even if they weren't substantiated. So you could find out, hey, there were 10 complaints about XYZ. Even if, and they'll say, look, we went and inspected this and, and here's what we looked at and didn't find it. In Georgia, you'll see, uh, we went and, and inspected complaint number, blah, 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 with no information about what it was about. So you're kind of left wondering, you know, well, what was that? And was there anything to it? Carrie Teagarden is my guest. She's an investigative reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're talking about her series that she's been working on, on assisted living homes in Georgia, revealing a, let's say, somber state of affairs for senior care. And let's just also point out that you did, the AJC did build this online database where people can go and look at the places that they're concerned about, maybe that someone they're looking at, considering maybe where someone lives. But Upwards of 3,700 separate violations that you and your team come through. Mm. But is this universal or are there are some facilities that are more egregious than others? Oh, definitely. And I think this is why we wanted to do the website is we wanted to give some people some guidance to help them sort the good from the bad, right? Because the marketing materials are just make every facility sound like a country club. They have, you know, chef driven meals. They have these beautiful facilities and um, we have an element of our series that kind of talks about the realities versus the marketing. But you can go on and get real information. OK, we collected police reports for many facilities, the inspection reports. Obviously, we um, rated each violation so you could get a sense of how serious it was and then gave you um Uh, some charts to show how does this facility compare with others in terms of violations. And, um, and this is for across the entire state of Georgia, every, um, 
assisted living facility and large personal care home, 25 beds and more. And these are the places that are private pay. They tend to be about $3,000 to $8,000 a month. So it's significant expense. And they were seen as like the ultimate solution. You know, nobody wants to put their parent in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And this is seen as like the really nice place. And um, I think what we wanted to expose is in too many cases, they're not living up to the hype. Right. This past Sunday's reporting took a pretty deep dive into neglect in senior homes. While the AJC did find more than 600 cases deem, uh, that it deemed as neglect, you said right. they rated them. Department of Community Health cited only four. Now, why are these numbers so different? You know, it's weird in Georgia. They don't really use the word neglect. They will have rules that we determined were neglect. Um, they will sometimes cite people for abuse, which is defined, but it's kind of a missing thing in our definitions in Georgia. Um, There are a long list of rules that people have to comply with, and many of them are not um, all that stringent. For example, staffing, okay? In Georgia, you only have to have one frontline staff member caring for people for every 15 residents during the day and every 25 residents at night. I mean, imagine... If you're a caregiver with very little training, um, trying to deal with 25 people overnight and people start having issues, the the situations that people find themselves in, again, as with very little training, I can't imagine it myself. Um, And it's very low wage jobs, 10 to $12 an hour. Right. And so understaffing is a huge problem, not having trained staff. What have the facilities said in response to this series and other complaints? You know, the industry um, really was a a little hard to get information out of. And so was the state for this series. Um, It hasn't it's an industry that hasn't had a lot of scrutiny. Um, But I think they feel like they're serving an important need. And that's true. Um, consumer advocates in Georgia fought for years to get the designation of assisted living, which allowed a little bit higher level of care than what we'd had before, which was personal care homes. Um, And this was seen as a way for people to age in place in a residential environment, okay? The kind of setting that we all would sort of prefer over a medical institutional model, which is more like what nursing homes are. Um, And I think... The concern is that people are living longer and they're very frail, and this is not a medical model. So it's a place where people are supposed to get, you know, showers, meals, help getting dressed. But there aren't nurses and doctors running around, you know, checking on people. And so um, I think it's true that it's a needed industry, but I think what we found is It's not delivering the care that people would expect, especially given the price tag with it. And that your desire is to give people a very comfortable, you know, experience in their older years when they're frail. Despite the saltwater pools and other amenities that are advertised in these places. If you can't tell, I'm on this this beat right now. Well, okay, so Money's report also touched on abuse between residents, including allegations of physical and sexual violence. Now, Mm -hmm. how... Is it, how, how do you track this, especially given so many residents with memory issues? Yes. And, you know, you don't want to blame the residents for this kind of thing. It's just it's it's part of dementia. But what we found is that 
um, the experts in this will tell you it's the responsibility of the facility to staff adequately so that they can um, protect residents from each other. You know, we found in inspection reports, you know, residents sleeping in each other's beds. They just go into each room and see that. I mean, um, there's a case of a hospice worker who was so upset about her patient being um, abused that that they had to take extreme measures because they felt like the facility wasn't doing its part to protect the resident. And so it's complex. And we found that even though the the training is very minimal, it's very commonplace, even with people dealing with folks with dementia, are not getting even that very minimal required on-the-job training. Right. So imagine being put in that situation of trying to handle someone with dementia. It's a very, very hard job. Very hard job for very little pay. Right. Okay, so this is a pretty heavy topic, and there are some tragic and very difficult stories in here I do want to note. How has this reporting been for you personally? We've just got a a minute to go. Um, I think, you know, I've written about a lot of tough topics over the years. I feel like the sad part is um, just the helplessness of many of these people. We wrote about a woman with um, dementia who the allegation is a, a care aide burned her with cigarettes all over her body. Mm. Things like that, that you just think someone is so vulnerable, sometimes unable to speak, won't be believed. They're some of the most vulnerable people I've written about. And that's what I think gets to you. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people that are struggling with the same thing, finding the right place. The outpouring from our readers has been huge, and we hope people will continue to contact us. And also folks who've worked in the facilities, we would love to hear from you as well. Carrie Teagarden, thank you for your time. Thank you. Carrie Teagarden, investigative reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The Unprotected series on assisted living facilities in Georgia is available on their website, as is that database where you can look up a facility either that you're considering or that somebody that you know and love might be there. It's going to be continuing to roll out through the rest of the year. Well, uh, you can join the conversation on our website. What are you experiencing? And also stay with us. We're going to get a whole new dimension of NPR series on aging this week. A reporter, Ina Jaffe, on new approaches to retirement. Stay with us. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. An estimated 10,000 baby boomers reach retirement age each day. By 2030, one in five Americans will officially be a senior citizen. Yet fewer are retiring when turning 65. And for many, traditional retirement is not financially feasible or desired. Ina Jaffe is a veteran correspondent for NPR, and she covers aging in America. She's out with a new series tackling the new realities of work and retirement for older Americans. And she's joining us now from what, NPR West? Yes, great. Culver City, California. Well, great to have you with us. How many boomers are putting off retirement? Do you have a sense of that? Well, the uh, there's about a quarter of people 65 plus in this country who uh, are still in the workforce. And um, that is unprecedented. It's way more than it was just a few decades ago. And it's projected to keep growing, um, certainly until about 2030, when the last of the baby boomers have retired Mm -hmm. or reached that age, I should say, since they're not retiring. Well, there's been plenty of study on this group. In fact, this is the fastest growing group of workers in the United States, 65 plus. You did some of your own uh, surveying to find people and the reasons that they were not retiring. What did you find? 
You know, it was interesting. We put out our own survey. And so since the um, respondents were self-selected, it wasn't scientific. But we asked a lot of questions and the answers were really revealing. Um, we got nearly 700 responses. I followed up, certainly not even with half of them, but with a lot of the people who responded. And many of them, a uh, the huge amount, uh, much more than the national average, were still working at least part-time, some because they had to, some because they wanted to. Overwhelmingly, the majority said both because they wanted to and because they needed the money. Mm -hmm. So um, that gives you the idea that this work and retirement balance that people are trying to figure out it's not all cut and dried. It's not people working only because they need the money. It's not people working just because they never want to stop doing what they're doing because they love it. It's really a combination of reasons. There are all kinds of factors that um, feed into this family situations as well as passions, as well as needs, as well as really your whole life history catches up with you in retirement. Mm -hmm. We spoke with a number of people who have continued and some who haven't continued their careers. Can you tell us about some of the people that you met? Well, the ones who aren't retiring. Um, in one case, um, I spoke to an 89-year-old man who is still a fitness instructor at the YMCA. <laughs> I just fell in, in love Orange with that. County. <laughs> and um, he, you know, he moved out to Southern California from the Northeast because he wanted to retire someplace where the weather was good, except then he didn't retire. Mm -hmm. And his wife keeps asking him, well, when are you going to do this and when are you going to do that? And he goes, well, I'm thinking about it. But um, he just he just can't picture himself retiring. He says he'll probably work until something stops him. And that he the way he put it was, it was really interesting. I want to be a contribution, not a slug. Mm -hmm. And so that really, though, then speaks to his whole tradition of working, his commitment to the YMCA, which he became involved with when he was growing up young and poor in Jonestown, Pennsylvania. He's been involved with the Y since he was eight years old. And his name is Bob Orozco, and he really is committed. He says... Uh, that your life is a gift that God gave you, and your gift back to God is what you do with that life. And so he really feels he's got a mission. Well, Bob Orozco, he is one of the people that we'll meet in your series that starts Wednesday this week on Morning Edition. This is something I think a lot of people are considering how they feel useful. You also spoke with someone called Andy Abrams. He's a retiree in Bakersfield, California. Let's hear just a little bit from him. You can't save enough for retirement if you're making two minimum wages and have kids. Forget about it. Yeah, Andy Abrams and his wife Ella, they consider themselves, you know, the lucky ones. They both have defined benefit pensions. These are the traditional pensions that were around when baby boomers were first entering the workforce, but have pretty much disappeared, um, except for mostly people in the private sector. Um, they're the kind of pensions where you get a fixed stipend each month for life, depending on your salary and years of service. And so you can't outlive your money. Though Andy Abrams worked in the private sector, um, he was one of the last in his company to still have a defined benefit pension. Mm -hmm. And that bit of tape that you just played, it shows that they recognize how lucky they are that savings, saving for retirement is something that, yeah, you can pat yourself on the back for, but isn't that easy for a lot of people? 
that um, there are a lot of people who have no way to save on their jobs. Right, of course. Financial advisors discourage tapping into your retirement savings. You found that wasn't always an option. So what were some of the common reasons that people had to use retirement funds early? Well, I met one woman um, who will be in a piece on All Things Considered this week who is living mainly on Social Security. About a quarter of Social Security beneficiaries live mainly on their Social Security stipend, and that's all. And she was doing that even though she'd had lots of jobs and worked her whole life. And I wanted to show that you can work your whole life and still end up with no retirement savings and um, mainly Social Security. Most of her jobs didn't have retirement plans. The ones that did were when she became a librarian, a children's librarian. But she moved from job to job. She moved from place to place. And so she dipped into her retirement funds to keep her going, her and the two children she was raising as a single mother, to keep them going when she was between jobs. So there was really nothing left except Social Security by the time she had to retire because of a disability. And then there are uh, people who still are helping their children out who dip into their retirement funds. According to one survey that I read, about half of older adults are dipping into their retirement funds to help grown children. Mm. And so there is one family, the Lusky family, who um, will also uh, be on the air this week. And they have an adult son living with them. He's, they describe him as being on the autism spectrum. I was unable to meet him at the time that I was at their home. So they're taking care of him. They're taking care of their younger son, who has also grown, but who has had a very on-again, off-again relationship with finishing his BA since uh, there's so much turmoil at home because of his older brother. Mm. And this is, this is not unusual for parents of children with intellectual or developmental disabilities. And it's not that unusual for any parents with grown children who are helping out with car payments or student loans or any number of things that young people face. Let's just hear a little bit from Victoria Bryant, who my guest Ina Jaffe spoke with for her series on the realities of retirement for NPR this week. It threw me like, I can't live like I used to, because at this age, end up having a bankruptcy. I was sort of in bed for a little while trying to figure out how could this have happened? Well, for many Americans, Social Security does make up the majority of their retirement plan. And we're talking about a payout of about $2,800 for someone who files at full retirement age, depending on the job that they had, which is currently 66. So you're talking about the realities, what people are doing now. How about the way that we think about retirement? How, how is this shifting? I mean, this has changed relatively, as you pointed out, quickly. It, it has. Retirement used, well, retirement used to be non-existent. Retirement it was sort of a post-war phenomenon. Um, people used to just work until they couldn't work anymore, or they lived in extended families, and um, they were helped out by uh, their children and perhaps even grandchildren when they got older. Social Security, as you recall, didn't even come into existence until the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really an expected part of life. Um, it became so after the Second World War. Then it became expected that that is what you do. There were even mandatory retirement ages in a lot of different fields of employment that you reached 65 and uh, you got your gold watch, your 
party with a sheet cake and <laughs> you went on your way. And people just don't think that's required of them anymore. Uh, they want something more out of life. Um, people, many people, not everybody, but many people are living longer. More educated people um, like the jobs that they have. Uh, they're not so arduous physically that they can't keep doing them into their late 60s or 70s or beyond. You spoke to people who are experiencing it and studying it. In fact, Teresa Gilarducci, she's a professor at the New School in New York City, talked about baby boomers and their savings. Here she is talking about the shift away from pensions to 401ks that people manage themselves. The problem is, is that the first boomers reached retirement age about the, the same time that we had a financial crash, the worst one since the Great Depression. And the fragility of that do-it-yourself system really exposed itself. Do you get a sense that people who are thinking about retirement, especially after talking with people who are facing the reality of it, know what they need for retirement? Do they, do they have a, a good bead or estimation of what it's going to take? If you're speaking financially, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, there are any number of advisors, online tools, all those kinds of things that will help you figure out what you need to retire. But in reality, you have also people who just haven't been able to follow the advice for one reason or another. They've had family crises or they were, you know, living in a fool's paradise. You have mm -hmm. no idea why. But baby boomers have saved a median of $150,000 for retirement. Mm. And that's for a retirement that could last 30 years. So clearly not everyone is really getting the message about um, what it is they need to do to save for retirement. Although you sh I should point out that half of people in the private sector have no retirement plan on the job. So it's entirely up to them to figure out how to save. And that's an issue that uh, some states are trying to address on the state level now. What kind of policy changes are they thinking about or what is happening in terms of state aid or federal aid for that matter? Several states have set up uh, programs. Uh, they go by various different names, but what they do is they just make the employer sort of a conduit for the money to pass through. They deduct 3% or so, like I said, it varies from state to state, from an employee's paycheck, and it's managed by an investment advisor hired by the state so that you do have something when you leave work altogether, you have this other retirement fund that has been managed by the state. And uh, they usually set these up where you can opt out of the program if you want, but you're automatically enrolled. And they find that participation is much higher. And so that will be something in addition to Social Security that lower wage workers will have. But, you know, you raised an interesting question before about how people prepare for retirement. It's not just financial. You know, there's so many articles that say you have to save this much and you should do that and mm -hmm. you should lower there's a your formula. expenses. You know, all these different kinds of, you know, there's tons of advice out there. But people spend a whole lot more time, therefore, worrying about how they're going to pay for their retirement than they spend thinking about what they're going to do mm -hmm. in their retirement. And so there's um, a certain amount of hunger now to find meaning in whatever it is that you do in retirement. I profile one woman who decided to stop working so she could volunteer. Mm. Um, her passion is helping other seniors. And so that is what she's doing on a volunteer basis at a local senior center four mornings a week. 
Um, she's 70 years old. Her name is Carrie Eagles, and she just didn't like the way older people in her community, which is mostly lower income, were being treated, and so she thought she wanted to contribute to making it better. So she's got the purpose part of that nailed down, but um, some people find themselves at just sixes and sevens trying to figure out what they're going to do now with all this time. Do many of them, you mentioned Bob Orozco, in fact, we should just hear him. He just sounds like such a great character. Let's listen to him. Sure. You know, if I retired, I uh, really don't know what I would be doing with myself. And as long as I'm capable, I want to be able to be a contribution and not a slug. Not a slug, as you said. Leading fitness classes at his local YMCA, which is just amazing at 88 years old. But that is a question. Are people who are retiring, are they often going on to second careers? We used to call them retirement jobs. You know, the thing that you may have always wanted to do or have to just keep going in the work that they're doing. Did you find? People um, do find second careers, second passions. Um, Sometimes people leave when they're 50 to, mm-hmm. you know, get started in that, uh, what is some called, called, sometimes called an encore career. And, you know, the Carrie Eagles, in a way, although it's not a career, uh, definitely left work so that she could pursue a passion. And there are, there's an organization called Encore.org that, in fact, uh, arranges fellowships so people can try out purpose-driven employment, you know, with nonprofits so that they can transition from something in the private sector to something that gives meaning to their lives and helps other people. I know this is something, as you said, people aren't thinking about it. They don't have enough money saved up for it. I think psychologically, I would observe that a lot of people just don't want to face it. They don't want to think about it. I have many people who are middle-aged, my peers, who are saying, you know, well, we'll all just buy a community together and live together. You know, there's a there's a kind of pie-in-the-sky way of thinking of aging. And I'm wondering, for you, as somebody who covers this and sees people grappling with it or not over and over, what you think? What What's the right way to go? Well, one of the things that you touched on is that uh, a lot of people, especially baby boomers, think that they're never going to get old. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's so so many disparaging remarks about older people without people realizing that uh, they're talking about their future selves. But when you say, oh, well, I'll just get a place together, that is actually starting to happen. It's called Mm co-housing. And there are more and more people finding ways to live in community where they have some support from their peers. It's a living model that I think a lot of people are looking towards. And it seems very boomer-esque, actually. Well, we're going back to the old commune idea, aren't we? (laughs) Ina Jaffe, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Ina Jaffe's series, The New Realities of Work and Retirement, brings some real voices and real stories to the experience of retiring or not in contemporary America. The series begins on Wednesday on Morning Edition here on GBB and all NPR stations. And we do have a link for more information on this special five-part series at gpb.org. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott.
the birding community tends toward the older, whiter, and wealthier demographic. Well, that hasn't stopped young, gifted, and black Jason Ward from keeping his eye to the sky. When I was 14, I spotted a peregrine falcon eating a pigeon on my windowsill in the Bronx. I never looked back. I'm Jason Ward. This is Birds of North America. Jason hosts that YouTube series and is an apprentice at the Atlanta Audubon Society. He's spreading his passion for birding far and wide and particularly to communities of color. Jason, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you for being here. Let's start with that story. That's pretty grisly about the peregrine falcon you saw as a kid. Came at a difficult time in your life. Put that moment into context for us. Yeah, so um, I'm just sitting by the window one day and I'm noticing feathers floating by. And me being your normal nosy New Yorker at the time, I ran to the window to see what was going on. Sure enough, there's a peregrine falcon defeathering, plucking the feathers right off of a pigeon about 30 feet from me. And that came at a really interesting time for me because that sighting came from my room in a homeless shelter. So birds have always had this uh, ability to Make me smile or bring me up out of a dire circumstance. Wow. So you were hooked. Yes. Right <laughs> from that point on, it was no looking back. And you describe yourself as a science nerd when you were growing up. You were the kid in the front of the class, raising your hands, dropping bird facts uh, with your classmates. But even after that defining experience with the falcon, you didn't really jump into birding full time. What did it take to do that? Uh, it actually So I became a birder six years ago, and two things had to converge in order for that to happen. I was working at a mortgage company, and they promoted me. So that granted me with weekends off and a little bit more money in my pocket. Those two together birthed this uh, newfound curiosity in wanting to go outside with a pair of binoculars on my free time and observe the birds that we see in our backyards every day. And those are the things that you share on your video series, Birds of North America. But you go all over the country for that, with the majority set then initially at your home in New York City. Mm-hmm. Now you've chosen to live in Atlanta. You've been there for 12, here for 12 years. Yes. Why settle here? You know, about 12 years ago, uh, my older brother, who's lived out here for decades now, uh, invited me out here just for the summertime, just to visit. So I came out here and I was hooked and he invited me to stay after the summer. It was an easy decision for me. I love New York. There's no place like home and and all of that good stuff. But the peace of mind, the slower pace and the nicer people, uh, there was, there was an, it was an easy decision for me. And plus so many green spaces. Uh, So the bird, how is birding different here? Um, the number of species that we have here all year round, uh, is is the numbers are really really high? So you can go out to a, a local green space and spend about forty five minutes there and see about thirty different species. So you have spoken a lot about what it means to be a birder of color, as you told WNYC. It's something that you think about all the time. Oh yeah, it's most something of that I am constantly thinking about as I'm out in the field. Um, something as minuscule as how quickly I take my binoculars from out of my backpack is something that I think about when I'm just doing an activity as simple as birding. So you're conscious of, uh, if I'm taking something out of my knapsack quickly, I might look what, suspect? Yeah, it's a shiny black object that I'm pulling out of my uh, backpack often. And in the wrong scenario, in the wrong environment, that may be mistaken for some kind of suspicious activity. So, and I don't even know if I do it consciously. These are subconscious decisions that I'm making in these uh, scenarios. 
So what is it like in the birding community? As we noted, tends to be much older, Mm -hmm. much whiter, very wealthy. How have you been greeted and how have you been, let's say, interacted with that community? You know, so far, so good. All of the interactions that I've had have been overwhelmingly positive. Um, The birding community is just like any other community. You have people from all different walks of life who are, for the most part, accepting. Um, Now, there are a few bad apples, but that goes to show that's the same across the board for any kind of organization or or any kind of group for that matter. Well, there are a couple of episodes of Birds of North America where you do talk about race, and there are plenty of comments along the line of, so we're talking about birds. Why does race have to come into this? So Mm -hmm. what is your response to that? Because it matters. It's just as simple as that. I can stop being a birder temporarily. If I go to a function somewhere or a gala somewhere, I can turn the birding off for a moment. Uh, It may not be for the duration of the event, but for a moment I can turn it off. But I cannot stop being black. And that factors into every decision that I make and it factors into everything that I love. So... That's why I speak about it. It simply matters. So how about the culture that you grew up in and the family that you grew up in? This is, as we said, this is not the demographic that generally goes for birding. How did they respond to you embracing this this passion of yours? Uh, they were a little curious at first. I mean, birding, you know, it's an acquired taste. Um, but, you know, they soon started to love it. And uh, my younger brother is now a birder as well. He's been birding for about five years. A big part of your work with the Atlanta Audubon Society, this is building a network with HBCUs in Georgia and Alabama. What are your goals there? My goals are just to create pathways um, from HBCUs to careers in conservation. As we've stated a couple of times already, these fields are overwhelmingly white, and we just aim to color the conservation conversation. I see. So what are some of the biggest challenges that in, to include in, in addressing those communities? So far, the... If if nature had a PR company, they need to hire some new people uh, because all of these ads, all, all everything that we're seeing on, on magazines and on TVs also are overwhelmingly white. So people of color don't feel invited to these spaces. And we're going to break down those barriers and hopefully they can see images that look like them partaking in these activities and feel more inclined to do so as well. I'm curious about your interaction so far. Have you found somebody who lit up with this this passion the same way that you have? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, children. You know, you take children out on a bird walk and they're saying things like, oh, I thought this was going to be boring. This is really cool. Or this is the first time I've ever ever heard, held binoculars before. These are the kinds of comments that you want to receive from people. Binoculars are a key into a world that has always existed. But now you have a, a, a the ability to see it in a different light. So I'm speaking with Jason Ward. He's talking with me about his experience as a birder of color in Georgia. And you're right. I mean, for the uninitiated, it may seem kind of mundane or frustrating (laughs) just to be. But you describe birding as a party in your mind that you need to contain so you don't scare the bird away. How do you how do you sell that to people who have limited experience? You know, you just have to take them out. That's that's what really does it for folks. Um, Being out in nature, away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life, away from your um, the news that you're seeing on TV, putting your phone down and just going out for five to ten minutes and listening to the bird song, watch them flying over. It's transformative and it's 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 calming for a lot of people as well. And that 
that sells itself. The birds do the heavy lifting. I just act as an, as an ambassador for the people. You've interviewed a number of people with varying degrees of birding experience on your YouTube show. Uh, comedian Wyatt Senak, um, yeah. for one, just a really funny guy. Veteran birder Jonathan Franzen, mm-hmm. Drew Lanham. Do you have like a favorite uh, experience? Oh, uh, the the end of the episode with Wyatt Senak, that really happened. So just to quite paint a picture. A quick picture. Um, he is talking about how he views birding now after he and I have been birding for a couple of hours. And as he's giving this heartfelt uh, diatribe, a, a, a falcon flies overhead and my gaze starts to turn towards the falcon and he notices and he's just like, come on, man, I thought we were, were <laughs> developing a friendship here. Don't look at the falcon. Look at me. And then he walks off and everyone starts, you know, busts out in laughter. But um. Yeah, that just goes to show you that no matter what's going on, I'm, I always have one eye to, or one ear to the birds. <laughs> you recently retweeted a video of Big Boy, the beloved Big Boy from Outcast, from, with his beloved owls. He's describing them as his latest fetish. This is on The Daily Show with host Trevor Noah last year. He, here he is talking about the origin story there. So my assistant, Shay, she's into birds. And uh, the guy who trains her birds brought this owl to the studio one time. Right. And I fell in love with him, and I bought two owls, Hootie and Houdini. Hootie, Hootie! Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know? Like, Mike Tyson had tigers, I got birds. (laughs) That's big boy. So what does that do for the community of color, if you're talking about outreach? What did that do for that community? I think that it's simple. People tend to fear what they don't understand. Right. And with big boy owning these mysterious, curious creatures that people only see at night, it's removing some of that stigma that may be unnecessarily placed onto owls. And it's opening opening up people's minds. Maybe they're more inclined to go to a local zoo or wildlife organization and look at owls, and maybe they'll see them in a nicer light after that. So a couple of weeks ago, the Journal of Science reported, after the long longitudinal study they've been doing for a long time, that Billions of birds, as many as 3 billion birds, have disappeared since 1970. So we're talking about 50 years, one in four birds. What, when you're looking at that kind of data, does it, where do you go with that in the birding community? It's really frustrating and it's it's saddening as well. And we're seeing it on the ground. And this is something that we've known has been taking place for a while when we see things like climate change and habitat loss and uh, urbanization. And then we throw things in there like feral cats as well. And uh, that's that's a big issue there. And it's a very divisive one. And that's it's an issue that I stand right on the front lines with. Cats need to be indoors. They kill billions of birds each and every year in the United States. So when we're throwing all of these issues at birds that are trying their best to survive, it's no surprise that those numbers are being reflected like this. Well, when that report came out, there was a lot of conversation about whether birds are an indicator species. The mm-hmm. the canary in the cone coal mine, as they say, the proverbial canary in the coal mine. Are they a warning that something is wrong? Absolutely. I mean, birds have been around 210 million years, approximately, and they are generalists for the most part. So they're highly adaptable. And the fact that they're starting to decline is a direct indication that something is going gravely wrong and we need to step in and make it right.
You've described hosting Birds of North America as your dream job. So here you are in it. And it was the first moment you experienced tears of happiness. Can you tell us briefly about that moment? Absolutely. So that was um, shortly after episode one premiered. That was about March 17th of this year. And for my life experience uh, up until that point, I've always equated emotion, sad emotion and tears with sadness. And upon seeing the reviews from folks, from strangers, pure strangers about Birds of North America, that is the first time that I cry tears associated with happiness. I didn't know it was even possible at that point in time, but I've always heard about this. I just thought it was a myth and it felt good. It really, really felt good. And I aim to, to, to get that feeling more often in the future. Well, it's infectious. Thank you so much, Jason, for speaking with us. Thank you so much. It's been J- a pleasure. Jason Ward, he's host of the YouTube series Birds of North America, and he is a Fund 2 apprentice with the Atlanta Audubon Society. As we head into the break, we'd like to wish President Jimmy Carter a grand happy birthday. At 95 years old, Carter is the oldest living former U.S. president, a title once held by the late George H.W. Bush, who died in 2018 at 94. Happy birthday to you, President Carter. The world mourns a Georgia-born giant today. Jesse Norman was born in Augusta in 1945 and grew up in the segregated South. In her memoir, Stand Up Straight and Sing, she remembers listening to opera on the radio as a child. She made her debut at the Met in 1983 and became one of the most renowned dramatic sopranos of her time. We're listening to her 1987 performance as Madame Lidoine in Poulenc's Dialogue des Carmelites. The five-time Grammy winner, Kennedy Center awardee, and National Medal of Arts winner spoke to Brenda Durant for the GPB series Where I'm From in 2014 about growing up in Augusta. My parents tell me that I started to sing about the same time that I started to speak. So I don't have any memory of not trying to sing. So of course that would have begun in the church because I would have started to sing in the church long before I started school. And by the time I was five years old and in first grade, we had what we used to call devotional periods at the beginning of the school day. And so there was always music and there was always someone reciting a poem or something. And I was very interested in doing that. I was always a bit of a ham and very pleased to stand up in front of the other 25 students and do something. (laughs) So that started already in first grade. First grade. So my first grade teacher is to blame for all of this. What school were you in? I was at C.T. Walker Elementary School, and I became, of course, a member of the Brownies, and then I was a member of the Girl Scouts over at the Bethlehem Center, and of course there was lots of singing there. And then I started to sing in the church choir by the time I was seven or eight, Mount Calvary Baptist Church. They're on Wrightsboro Road, and we thought we were pretty good because we would get invited to sing at other churches even. Oh. Oh, yes. One more question about the schools. Yes. In Augusta, when you were at C.T. Walker, was it a segregated school? Completely segregated, absolutely. We're talking about the 50s. I went to segregated schools throughout my education here in, in Augusta, and I went to the A.R. Johnson Junior High School. It was a brand-new school at the time. And then I went to Lucy Laney High School. 
And throughout my education here, I, I know that we were all fortunate to have teachers that were interested in us, that wanted us to do well, and pushed us further than we thought we could go. It was almost like being in what we would call a private school because we were segregated in the community, segregated socially, politically, but we had people near us that counted on us to do well. And I'm very grateful for that. And that work ethic has stayed with me all my life. And it's the reason that I show up perhaps a bit too early for rehearsals. And I'm there because that's the way I started doing things as a Girl Scout. I can't imagine that the parents of my generation would have allowed the study of the humanities, the study of the arts to leave public school education. They simply would not have put up with it. Yeah. They understood too well the importance of a child performing in a band or performing in a choir. And it didn't mean that you could sing very well or that you could play the instrument very well. It was the experience of being and interacting with your peers and understanding how to be a part of a group. We'll leave you with Norman performing When I Am Laid in Earth, known as Dido's Lament from Henry Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought tomorrow at 9 or anytime with the On Second Thought podcast.